you and your degenerate friends already waste enough time thinking about disc golf. But just in case, here's some extra material on the Fish Golf Broadcast. On this episode of the Fish Golf Broadcast, I sat down with Jeremy Big Germ Coling, who actually is that big, life-size. I, I get messages and comments and in-person greetings constantly. You're not that big, or you're bigger than I thought you were, or anything that has to do with size. It's just the first thing that people say. Yeah, it, it, I guess it's a pretty easy way to start that conversation when like, mm. your moniker identifies you as such. The very but, first thing. I mean... It's a good thing you're not like ugly germ. <laughs> <laughs> I guess I, I could have an ironic nickname like Little John. I don't know if you're quite big enough to Ironically have the little yeah. large. Yeah, yeah, I'm just large. Mm-hmm. I'm quite large. But yeah, people people say you're not that big, and I'm like, man, I I don't know. I, I feel like I'm I'm ex- pretty big, exactly the size that I am. Yeah. <laughs> um. Uh. So just before we started, we were kind of talking about North Carolina disc golf, mm-hmm. and. Uh, for, for context, we were recording just after the Blue Ridge Championships, which was held in Marion, North Carolina, a special place to you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is. Um, uh, if you were tuning into the f- first round of coverage, uh, they probably mentioned that uh, Jules and I got married there mm-hmm. uh, back in November, November 11th. Um, we have big uh, number synchronicity things. So the 11, 11, 22 was a, a big thing <laughs> for us. So that was pretty cool. Um, went to the Collegiate Nationals in 2021 and met the owner of the property, Kyle Sims. Mm-hmm. And I was just there supporting my best buddy, Henry, who was uh, in charge of collegiate disc golf. And um, Kyle came up to me and said, hey, uh, if you ever plan on popping the question, like get married here. <laughs> and uh, it was just kind of a no brainer because the place was beautiful, mm-hmm. um, which is obviously really important, but also the the mountains of North Carolina are very much like heart and soul for me. Yeah. It's, it's two hours from home yeah. and it's, it's disc golf, a, yeah. something that yeah, like sure. is very identifying sure. to your life. Yeah. Um, so, so you mentioned that this was actually the first like pro tour, elite series, anything close to that yep. that's been held in the state since 2012 Worlds. Yeah, I mean, it, for a traditional style stroke play event, mm-hmm. um, because obviously the the pro tour championships finale is in Charlotte. Yeah, um, Hornets Nest for a couple of years, and then Nevin last year, and um, you know that's great. We love having a, a big tour event here in Charlotte, and it's it's warranted as mm-hmm. the. Uh, you know, people call Charlotte the Mecca. It, you know, you, people can argue forever about where the greatest place to live for disc golf is, but Charlotte has a great case. Yeah. And it's nice to have an event here that finishes the season, especially right after the, the USDGC, which is in Rock Hill, 30 mm-hmm. minutes away. Um, but yeah, we haven't actually, North Carolina as a whole, hasn't actually hosted uh, a tour event um, since the 2012 Worlds. And, you know, I was kind of racking my brain trying to think back, like, surely that's not right. No, it is. I can it only is. think of yeah. I can only think of eight tiers that you mm-hmm. know have been in Charlotte or Raleigh Planet. or something Chuckster was doing. Sure, yeah, he runs so many tournaments. Right, he used to, still kind of does, but mm-hmm. but yeah, so many. I mean, now Scorpion's taken over and they're running, you know, fifty tournaments. It doesn't even make sense how you can run <laughs> that many tournaments in a year. But you know, you you can find as many tournaments as you could ever possibly play in this area, but nothing on the elite level. Right. And so and it's pretty cool. So, so what do you think is the cause for that? Is it infrastructure? Is it willingness? Is it is it the pro tour like having requirements that kind of squeeze certain places out? Well, I think you don't want to get fixated in one place too much. I mean, since the USDGC and Pro Tour Championship uh, do occur back to back weeks mm-hmm. in October, uh, I mean, I guess it wouldn't really make sense to have three tournaments in one very specific area. Yeah. Um, so, but, so maybe a silver series that is like leading it to champions yeah. cup is a sweet spot. Well, it makes sense that this part of the season I mean, we're, we're, you know, we just had the music city open in Nashville. Um, and then we're on our way down to the PDJ championship or the champions cup, excuse me, um, in Appling, Georgia next week. And so, yeah, I mean, it was kind of a convenient little stop in between and obviously all the momentum that they have there at North Cove, um, 
and all the work that Andrew Duvall has put into the design and the entire end of a team and everything that they've put into that place, that, that complex, it's worth seeing. And strangely enough, as many times as I've been there scoping it out for collegiates and also for a wedding venue, I had never played. <laughs> and I, there's three courses to play. There's plenty of disc golf to play up there, but I just haven't had the time or the weather wasn't cooperating, but um, finally got to play it. And, you know, we both competed in the event and i mean i don't know what your thoughts are on it but i was amazed obviously at the property which i already knew i would be Mm -hmm. but i was also amazed at the level of difficulty that they created and the number of angles and different types of challenges that were created on this property and i didn't know what was on the right side of the parking lot i only knew (laughs) about what was on the left side so to see all of that over there, it was really amazing. And to know how close they are to having a truly, I don't want to say perfected because it's never perfected, but a, a flawless in terms of design, in my opinion, design, they're close to. They're not there yet, but for the first time that we're seeing this on this level, I was, I, personally, I was impressed. Sure. So th- I, that's got to instill a lot of pride in you, like for the state of North Carolina, sure. knowing that like more is possible. Yeah, for sure. Um, so I, I guess with that in mind, it would be your hope that they could continue to host big events there. Do you think mm-hmm. there's any logistical hurdles to clear with it being such a remote location? Yeah, that's that's one of the things. I think obviously we want to be in a place where we can, uh, the, the tour needs to be sustainable mm-hmm. and it's a for-profit business. And if they aren't getting spectators out there in droves and buying merchandise and buying tickets to watch these players play, then it might not be a returning spot. Uh, parking wasn't necessarily a horrible thing, but um, they're building a new parking lot. They're going to try to expand on what they have available. But, um, I mean, the logistics are always a huge part. I think it's one of the reasons we aren't returning to uh, De La Viega anymore. Sure. Um you know, the issues with the cell signal were interrupting the, the coverage for the FPO broadcast, and that's never great. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, there's going to be some issues that they've got to get past. Um, but, I mean, I guess as a player, when I go see a course like that, and I don't have to concern myself uh, with doing commentary because it's a Silver Series event, and Joma's only covers the elite and majors, um, I look at it as, like, how am I breaking this course down course design wise yeah and so that's my first concern and then you know as a fan of north carolina and all the people that are putting on the tournament my best man being the td of the event Mm -hmm. um then i start looking at like logistical hurdles how can we improve these certain aspects to make sure that we can come back because i would love for this to be a recurring event not just for my love of north carolina but because on a golf style course we had technical golf we had elevation. We had <coughs> arguably maybe too tight of OBs, but a lot of OB that kept us in check. And uh, I just thought it was a fantastic venue. And also for personal reasons, I mean, I'm returning to the place I got married. Yeah. So there's a lot of things that draw me in. Yeah, a lot, lot of happy memories there. So um, let, let me just set the stage here. Uh, this was a three-round event on a Duval design that had a lot of tight OB in the Southeast. Let's see, a lot of rain. Yes. And so some adverse conditions. Aren't you supposed to win tournaments that only have three rounds in that scenario? <laughs> oh man, it's been seven, six and a half years since since that was the rule. <laughs> um, so with that in mind, like that feels like a lifetime ago for a lot of people. Like the, the disc golf scene is... 10 times larger than it was yeah. at that point. Um, can you talk about how Jomez has like, I, I don't want to meet, I don't want to say revive your career because like you're still a very so competent sustained. player. Um, but, yeah. but like you've been able to see the media side as well as the playing side in the mm-hmm. last like seven years in particular, mm-hmm. but your entire career. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, well, without Jomez, I mean, there's just a, I don't know how much I have to offer the community. Like, what is my outlet? Um, you know, I mean, the personality of, of, of Big Germ is what drives the brand. And how do people know who I am without being able to have access to me? 
<laughs> and before before Jomez, before commentary, um, the only way that people had access to me was by my play. Sure. And that was the way that basically all of us on tour, that's what, what we had. You had to kick butt. Right. And that's kind of before the true rise of social media. Yeah. And it was like you knew Ken Climo and Barry Schultz yep. because like, you would see butt. some grainy DVD <laughs> yeah. footage yes. later. Yeah, DVD. I mean, I had some VHSs. Um, <laughs> I had some VHSs. Billy Crump guys. calling it into yeah, his oh, hand. Yeah, sure. Nature Boy lives about 30 minutes down the road. <laughs> not even, actually. Not even. He lives right down the road. But that was, I mean, for people who are listening that don't have a, 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 a deep historical knowledge of the, the history of commentators, the first guy that we really had to really be the voice of disc golf the personality i guess mm -hmm. of of coverage was billy nature boy crump <laughs> and uh <laughs> he was a character he's in there sticking the bum lining up a hook thumb <laughs> <laughs> he's got a he's got an issue with his feeding he'd always call it feeding <laughs> he's gonna have to talk about those demons in the parking lot afterward he he uh he helped bring the the term uh patent pending to the world um <clears throat> Many people know that the story is basically an argument that Barry Schultz and Ken Climo had about who had the, who was the first one to do the back to the basket stance that's stretching out to one side, and uh, they they couldn't agree on who did it first, so they called it patent pending. Well, Barry Schultz, I mean uh, Billy Crump was the one that really brought that story to the world, <laughs> and without that, that's just a, one of those little anecdotal things that just gets lost over time and nobody knows about but now anytime someone stands to their back to the basket it's a patent pending and an apocryphal story that like new players they know the term they don't know what it is yeah sure it's i mean there's so many of those things and yeah billy's a man that guy's a character but i mean he he gave he gave me a lot to um i don't know he gave me a lot to a lot of inspiration in many ways our styles couldn't be more different but as far as really truly embracing who I am behind yeah. the microphone and telling the story in the way that I see it without trying to sound too buttoned up. Mm -hmm. Billy wasn't afraid to be Billy. No. And he was good at calling the action, but there are a lot of slow times that you kind of just need to riff. He is a riff. <laughs> <laughs> he, 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 he basically invented disc golf riffing. Uh, he could tell a story forever. And I feel like that's one of the things that I, I pride myself in, in, in many ways too. For sure. I, th I thought about asking you one question and then leaning back. Um, so uh, right before we started, you put your phone on silent. Can you tell me about some debacles that have occurred during oh. Jomez commentary? Oh, yeah. Um, you know, uh, back in the days when we used to have a GoPro attached, like clipped to the computer screen, that would kind of get like any sort of facial reactions like something that could Caught be spliced in yeah, later. Yeah, like if there was some crazy thing that happened, they'd have a GoPro running. Yeah. That way they would... <coughs> Excuse me, I'm I'm running out of... Parched. Yeah, parched. Um, but yeah, we uh, we forgot to hit the record button and the entire like nine holes, I don't know if it was front nine or back nine, but the whole thing was we had to use uh, GoPro audio. Oh, no. That was pretty bad. Um there's been a few times when Paul and I had the laughing fits so much that we quite literally could not keep going. Uh, <laughs> like just have to cut it after hole four and yeah. I mean like we, we'd pick back up. We wouldn't start over from the beginning, right. but like we would get to a point where like Yuli is just eyes closed, tears coming down his face. I'm calling the action. I'm trying to move on or the other way around. And it's just not possible. But, but like, any one thing else you say can set him off anew. I'm yeah, sure. yeah. Like we'll be like two holes later, and then something will happen, and then like he'll just think about it. And I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't even said anything. He just thinks about it, and he starts laughing. And so that doesn't happen that often. And I think over time, like we have learned from having to uh, deal with angry editors to like, you know, just keep the show going. Yeah. Um. And but I mean, for the most part. The only thing that's really ever been crazy is just some of our hours that we're working. Yeah. So what's what is the Jomez workflow like at this point? Mm. It's it's still evolving, uh, believe it or not. It, it started off pretty easy. Um, back in the days where we would just go into the Jomez RV with Nate and I, 
we would um, just see who had the earlier tea time, mm-hmm. and we'd start recording two and a half hours before that tea time. That gave us enough time to record the front nine, switch to the back nine, get that done, maybe have time for like a little sandwich or something like that. Yeah, but their RV is at the course at that point, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> RV would be at the course. That way we can just go straight into warm-ups and, you know, get going. But we always did commentary in the morning. Well, we started presenting commentary at 7 a.m. Mm-hmm. Um, and people got used to it. They loved their, their coffee and Jomez. And so we started doing commentary night, which was fine. Uh, think two full seasons ago when commentary was uh, ready to go by at latest 9 p.m. Mm-hmm. Because the MPO side had the early tea times and FPO had the afternoon tea times. Right. They switched that. And with that, our editing times got pushed back three, four hours. Mm-hmm. And so it obviously sent our editing crew into a frenzy to try to get things done. And so basically we were watching coverage raw without the disc names, without the follow flights actually drawn in, without, mm-hmm. you know, all, all the things that you kind of see as a polished image of what you see with Jomez. We were getting the bare bones. And so a lot of time we're speculating on what discs are what. And yeah, everyone's like, you're an idiot. It's right there in the top right of the screen. It's like, for you, we don't have that (laughs) information. And so like, if I don't intimately know the person's bag, I'm guessing, which eventually I just stopped guessing because I didn't want to call the wrong disc anymore. But, um, you know, I mean, sometimes we were getting, we were getting started, um, like started at 12, 1, I think the world championships in 2021 with the holy shot, we decided to push commentary back from like 2 a.m. to the next morning, but 5:30 a.m. just so that we could make sure we hit that that time slot so everybody was ready, got their morning jomas. So I mean, we just have this incredibly crazy night after the insanity of this mm-hmm. uh, unbelievable shot and the. Oh my God, did that just happen? We're all celebrating and and then we got to go to sleep and we got to wake up and we got to call the most important round and, of our lives. And be sharp knowing that yeah. this is getting hundreds of thousands of views. Yeah. And, and forever, you know, and, and, and afterwards there was a lot of really good ideas that we came up with on how to actually like have that shot called. Yeah. But in the moment, I mean, it's 5 a.m., you know, you're tired, you're running on empty mm-hmm. and it's just like, I, you know, kind of blacked out. I, I remember uh, Yuli and Nate and I were all just kind of joking with one another saying, like, if you guys screw this up, we're going to hate you forever. <laughs> you know, and just like kind of messing around. That's how we do anyways. We always, we, we probably get in the booth about 20 minutes before we actually start recording because it's mm-hmm. always just sharing stories about a round. And we have this thing, a game called Fingies, where we have a right hand for good fingy mm-hmm. and a left hand for bad fingies. And basically, we just say, all right, hole one for the week. And then we've got to go in our mind and think about what our total collective score is for the first hole. And so if someone says three under, another person says two under, another person says even, even the worst score takes a bad thingy and mm-hmm. three under takes a good thingy. And so, it's, so it's like skins for your little group. Yes. And if there's a tie for the top or a tie for the bottom, no fingies either way. Hmm. Except the bottom score would take the fingy if it's outright the bottom. Yeah, yeah. But you don't get a fingy if you're tied with two under and two under. So, anyways, it's just yeah, it's, it's skins for fingers. It's finger skins, as we call it. I just made that up. It, but it's a. Anyways. Is that going to catch on? It's not. There's no. I way. really hope not. But yeah, we do stuff like that, and um, that, you know, basically we have some some bonding time, some camaraderie, and then I always said that wrong word, but camaraderie. Yeah. Um, and then uh, yeah, then we get into it. And it's, you know, knock on wood, it's one take every time. And we, uh, you know, we send it to the world with all the germisms and all the... Warts and all. Yeah, everything. Yep. You guys get to see, and we're watching it for the for anyone who who asks, the, this is a question we get a lot. Do you guys ever watch coverage first? How much time do you think we really have? <laughs> Absolutely not. And I know doing it for Gatekeeper, like if there's something weird we yeah. might scrub through it sure but that's it mm-hmm. yeah if, if there's like a situation where there's like a a rules call and there's like a big long discussion about it the editors will give us a preview yep but as far as the action goes i i don't really generally know what someone's going to score on a whole yeah 
before I see it on camera. For sure. I'm Luke Humphreys, and I never don't listen to the Fish Golf Broadcast while I'm rock hounding. I'm Double G, and I listen to the Fish Golf Broadcast while I marinate my beef. If you like where this show is headed, stick around for part two. We'll never barrage you with 11 minutes of droning external ads to start the show. So please support the Fish Golf Broadcast by visiting discgolfbra.com for hats and other apparel. Fish stamp discs are available at fishdiscgolf.com and daddydiscgolf.com, and you can save 10% on upperparkdiscgolf.com with the code ANDREW10 on backpacks and other items. And now, more lies and outrageous claims from our guest, met with calm reason by Fish. Welcome back to the Fish Golf Broadcast. It's more Jeremy Colling. It's what everyone wants. <laughs> Nobody asked for this. <laughs> subscribe. No, don't. <laughs> no, definitely subscribe to it. Just you know, maybe then, mute this episode. Don't mute the episode. Just I. Fish golf is hard. To, it's hard to commit to the name. I, I I like the name. I honestly don't dislike it. It's just hard for me to say fish golf broadcast. I, I it's disc golf is hard to say. It sounds too. like a you problem, not a me problem. It's definitely a me problem. <laughs> like it sounds like it's working out great for you. I mean, okay, like okay, disc golf is easy for disc golfers to say because yeah. we we like blend the words together to make it sound good. Yeah, but. C then G is not something not you find great. in nature. <laughs> it's not great. And I, it's one of the reasons why I think... Is that even a good major chord? Do you no. know enough about oh, music? Uh, I don't think many people are going to go straight from C to G. Okay. I think it's... Yes. Especially if it's like a C flat and a G minor. I just made that up. I don't I don't really know. <laughs> is that right? I, I don't... I, I don't know. We're going to get corrected. I didn't I make my own intro theme. Um, but uh, yeah, disc golf... When you say it like that, it yeah. sounds like a news anchor, right? Somebody who's a noob. You can tell how long someone's been playing, oftentimes, by how they say disc golf. Right. Um, so when did you start? No, not that. We're not asking that question. Okay. What podcast do you think this is, you rube listeners? Who was the first person you said disc golf to, and it got horribly butchered into disco or disga? Oh, or- oh. Uh, it must have been at a gas station with an elderly person yeah, asking yeah. me why I was dressed the way I was dressed. That's a fair question under any circumstance. Yeah. <laughs> like you, your aesthetic is like child saw thing at Walmart yeah. will purchase regardless of how it matches everything else. Wow, that's rudimentary. That's it's really breaking it down and and like it sounded like you're trying to be insulting, but like I know that you did it with like. No, I was trying to be insulting. Okay, cool. Yeah, cool. I, I, I read that perfectly clear then. That's good. Um, it's You and I dress as different as, as possible on the course. I feel like that's... Oh, that's very true. Yeah. I get new clothing and I hate it immediately yeah. because it's not my old clothing that is bland. I think James Conrad might be... He likes... He doesn't like stretchy things. Hmm. And so like his pants are made out of like rugged like work material type pants like okay. he does it. and i i just i can't even i can't even imagine it i can't even imagine everything i wear is stretchy and I, is, I, I, is that just because like your body is weird and yeah and, like for those I, at I, home fish just made an octopus type of motion with his arms well i guess what i was trying to get to is like it's hard it's hard for me as well to get clothing that fits in length mm. and mm-hmm. like heft. Yeah, sure. We're all, yeah, everyone, everyone's body's different. So it's mm-hmm. always difficult like to find. It, it would make so much more sense. Like, obviously I don't want tailored shirts. Like I don't dress up for things. Yeah. I'm very comfortable looking like a dirt mm-hmm. bag, but it would be really nice <laughs> if like medium tall was a standard shirt size. Yeah, no doubt. I, I'm definitely uh, sitting on a bunch of clothing that I wish I had returned because I, <laughs> I get it. And I'm like, yeah, I think this uh, will work. And then, you know, if it doesn't actually fit just right, I'm like, I'm not going to wear this. Mm-hmm. And so I, I have wasted so much money on clothes, <laughs> so much money. But, um, anyways, uh, back to 
I want I want to wrap this this thing up the 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 fish golf the disc golf and all that. Uh-huh. Um, Dave Felberg, w- w- I don't remember where he was saying this, um, but he was talking about how if if our sport was granted permission by Whammo back in the early days mm-hmm. to actually use frisbee golf, it it would have actually done wonders for our sports uh, promotion and marketability. Yeah, marketability early because it's not an awkward. CG. It's not the disc golf. Mm-hmm. Frisbee golf rolls off the tongue quite well. And frisbee is a singular use thing. Like mm. with disc, it's compact disc or laser disc or mm. uh, yeah, sure. Like disc break. Frisbee means something that you can throw with your hands that glides and soars mm-hmm. and looks beautiful while but, it's flying. But the SEO for disc is terrible. Mm-hmm. It's not good. Nobody likes the compact <laughs> disc anymore. Somebody actually handed me a CD. Uh, last week when I was in Asheville. Like a mixtape? Yeah, it's his it's his album. And I looked at him and I said, man, I really would like to play this. But my computer doesn't have a CD <laughs> port. My truck doesn't have a CD <laughs> port. I have no earthly idea how I could even play this. You just this. put it on your finger and then spin it. Really. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I, he looked at me and said, yeah, I don't know. I, I know that, but I just check it out on Spotify. But he handed me the yeah. CD anyways, so. Yeah. Huh. I'm, I wonder if that's like the new business card for musicians <laughs> to just like hand out discs and be like, you could try this or yeah. find me on SoundCloud. And I and I, I traded him an AOL 50 hours free CD. Yo, yeah. that's that's good stuff. It was a good trade. Do you, do you remember how valuable those things were? It was like phone uh, cards when long distance cost you mo- money. I, I felt like those were the least valuable things in the world because they were everywhere. I saw them <laughs> just littered on the streets. Like I felt like those things were a diamond, a million, not even a dozen, a mm-hmm. dime, a million. Am I wrong on that? Uh, come from different perspectives on this one. I don't know. Maybe this is just like, you know, three or four years difference matters here. Yeah, sure. You're 34. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I think it does matter. Okay. Like, right. okay. You, what weird things were you searching when you were, you know, twelve and the internet was just starting? <laughs> yeah, yeah, we're getting you on record here. I made what? him, I made him swear to tell the truth, uh, nothing but the truth. Yeah, I did, I did. Uh, what we, you know what? So I, I remember my mom was dating this guy who worked at UNC, okay. and he had access to a printer and we didn't have a printer or the internet at our house. And so he'd always say, Hey, I'm going into work today. Like, do you want me to print out anything? And I remember asking him to like print out the homepage for like NBA.com. So like I was just getting like a screenshot or whatever it was back then. Sure. Of the front page of the Nas- national basketball. Were you trying to get scores or just like? I don't even know. Like you, you asked me, you and I didn't did, know how to answer the questions. Yeah, so you I didn't know what to ask. I didn't for. know what was, <laughs> the whole world of questions you could ask. And I was just getting lousy screenshots of the homepage of just different professional sports bodies. Like it was just such a lame thing to get back. I look at it and I'd be like, I'm not interested. I just throw it away. <laughs> but like, like, I don't know. When you're 12, like, what do you look up? I mean. I know some 12 year olds are looking up, but the internet was a very different place 25 years ago. Absolutely. Like that. I don't know what, I haven't looked into demographic information for who's who's downloading the show. So any 12 year olds out there, I don't want to know. I hope it's just like New York times recipes for pancakes or something. Like some, something that's safe to make as a 12 year old. There, there's gotta be just an infinite amount of cool things that you can do. I mean, I just, I, I am amazed. I, I feel so helplessly addicted to and drawn to apps like yeah, just anything social media. There's so many fun things. Obviously, there's horrible, horrible places you can go on the mm-hmm. internet. But if you, you know, dark if you're, web. yeah, the dark web, if, if you get directed in the right place, you can find some really inspirational art. Yeah. A lot of inspirational craft projects that have inspired me to do certain things that were outside of my comfort zone. And obviously, discovering new things i just you know that's the good stuff so um. yeah it, it it honestly sucks that like the internet tempts you to fritter away your time when you can find such good poetry and music and art yeah. and just like the things that propel you to find your own creative outlets i that's the good part that's the good part you know i are we selling the internet well to our listeners? Are they? Are they uh, yeah, the buy inter- in the, to inter- the internet. I'm right, telling right, right. you guys, it's like, a good thing or, or a bad thing. You could be an early investor right now. Um, the internet, a sponsor <laughs> of the Fish Golf broadcast. <laughs> Fish Golf. Oh my goodness! All right, are what's, you still on that? Let's let's move on. 
All right. Um, so I'm told you have a good forehand. Mm. Uh, I want you to go off. Tell everybody how good your forehand is. It's quite good. Yeah, okay. Um, so there are a lot of different forehand styles. And like, yeah, you know, boy. you have a good forehand, but it's wildly different from Eagle's forehand. Yeah, former. Uh, I mean, like... R.I.P. in a way. I will remember you. Um, <laughs> yeah, man, okay, seriously. But, but like, a lot of the newer generation of players, like, mm-hmm. let's say, started 2015 to present... That's new in your eyes. Um, are you? Hold on, real quick sidebar. Are you familiar with the turnaround in disc golf or the turnover? Yes, I've already talked about this in the context of Jomez and media, right? So, uh, what? Tell me what you understand, and then I'll 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 add something if you haven't covered this. Um, I guess I guess what we need to establish here is the BF line, like before forehand, where every good player had a forehand. No, no, no. I mean like. I mean, like how how fast disc golf is growing. That's what I mean. I'm, oh, sure, I'm aware. Okay, so just for our listeners who maybe aren't aware of this, um, I'm interested to see where he's going with yeah, this as okay. well. Because okay. we might be talking past each other somehow. We, we well, this is like a normal round with Fish and I on the card. We have a. I feel like we have a lot of conversations that just go all sorts of directions. Yeah, like last last for five holes. Yeah, correct. <laughs> We've talked about trigonometry. We've talked about, I, honestly, I can't even, like, we've talked about so many different things that I feel like I don't have the comfort of talking to other players with uh, or about on the on the course. And I, I enjoy that about playing with you. But anyhow, uh, the growth of the sport, and this is a statistic that came before the explosion of COVID. Um, every two years, well, well okay. The let's consider a new player, somebody who has has been playing for the last two years. Yeah, deal. Okay. Everyone else in the world is lumped into old players. If you've been playing for three years, you're old. Okay? Okay. I accept your terms. There are more new players in the game than there are old players. And as soon as the next year comes, those guys who were in the new are now in the old, <laughs> and there are more new players... Then there are old. And so that keeps happening. We keep adding more players than there have ever been that are still playing. The most, the biggest number of disc golfers in the world are people who have been playing for less than two years. And it's just incredible that we keep recycling that. We keep yeah. turning that over. And so when you say 2015, to me, I'm like, but? those guys are like ancient <laughs> that- disc golfers compared to the majority. Yeah, sure. Okay. Um, So what year would you say that the vast majority of touring players had a a competent forehand? Not just something they would break out when they had to. The vast majority? That is a new thing in in the last, oh gosh, I got to say the last four years. Okay. So, right? So your, your forehand style is very wristy. It doesn't rely mm-hmm. on hacking over an overstable disc. Very important. And I think that like it's informed by the the like kind of nineties culture of throwing understable things because there weren't fast overstable things to work with. Mm-hmm. Um, that now that's that's my characterization of your forehand without thinking about how you personally developed it. The difference between you and a lot of touring players is that they're gonna like they're going to throw the most overstable firebird they can find. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're going to hack over on like a tactic or something like that mm-hmm. instead of buttering a straight putter. Sure. The, uh, well, I mean, there's a lot of merit to it. I mean, w- a lot of the courses we're playing are exposed to more wind sure. and more distance. And they don't have to necessarily concern themselves with the same type of particular shots that I was trying to master uh, when I was first starting in North Carolina and in the woods here on the East Coast, I felt like that was more of an art, like I was painting a picture. Mm-hmm. So when I was throwing my forehands, um, I felt uh, a great deal of anxiety trying to hit a tight gap with a backhand. Mm-hmm. 
uh, and that was 17 years ago, and it's still the same today. <laughs> Nothing's changed. Um, but I mean, it's 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 just something about the comfort of standing over a shot, being able to address it with my run up, and never turning my head away, being able to look at it head on, and and just say, if I can see a straight gap, I can hit a straight gap. Uh, whereas if I do that with the other side of my body and throw a backhand, I'm turning away from it, and I feel a little bit less um, aware of what I'm doing. And so I had to develop a, a way for the disc to go left and for it to go right. Mm-hmm. And just with trial and error, I, I figured out that the most successful way of doing that, for me, repetitive way of doing that, was with discs that ranged in all sorts of stability. And if I just relied on throwing Firebirds and other overstable discs forehand, then I was just going to get essentially one result. And I needed, right. And I needed all the results. <laughs> And I needed every single stability possible to be able to work the best I possibly could in North Carolina. Um, and yeah, I, I, I was very stubborn. You know, I decided, obviously, I need to learn a backhand. But, you know, like every time I work on the backhand, I go right back to the forehand. It's super simple for me and my brain to process how this works, how mm-hmm. this fits, how this shapes, how this lands, how this fights the wind, how this uses the wind, how this lands. I mean, everything just was like, I could see it before I threw it. Yeah. And with my back end, I was like, man, if everything comes together at the right moment and the sun is in the right place in the sky <laughs> and I somehow miss those trees right there and everything comes together, I might be as close as just the very first forehand instinct that I have. I, I think it's very funny that like you go through all these all these conditions that have to work for your backhand. Yeah. And I'm like, hey, I'm just gonna throw a backhand mid range. Yeah. But if you ask me to do the same thing with a forehand, right. like yeah, you're, you're that's cal- my trouble. Calculus. Spot. <laughs> just straight up numbers are flying around in your head and you're just trying to like what is going yeah, on, I, man? I, I am a meme at that point. Yeah. You just have to simplify things. Yeah. And for me, the simplest way to do it was just let's just go with the right side of my body here. Sure. So yeah, um and and so that style um worked really well for me. And I was getting the result that other people were getting thrown backhands mm-hmm. and the majority of players when I first started, the vast majority of players, uh predicated their game exclusively on a backhand. Mm-hmm. And so I was even told by local legend um, Stan McDaniel that um, if I ever wanted to be a, a champion in the sport, I'd have to predicate my game on a backhand and use the forehand as an auxiliary shot. Hmm. And I just remember thinking to myself, like, nah, man, like I'm going to be the first to do this. Like I'm going to, like I know where I'm at right now with my game. You know, back then, this is what I was thinking. Yeah, I was yeah, like, yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to win with a forehand as my main shot. And I was just stubborn and I developed it and developed it until it eventually won me tournaments. I mean, it's kind of like any game plan, any strength you have can work if you believe in it enough, right? Sure. Yeah. And if you, (laughs) if you believe in yourself, yeah, sure. Yeah. I mean, I was just thinking about this on the way down here. Like I, I was driving the RV and I was thinking about how confident I am driving a car. I don't think about it. Not it's very day. natural. It's just natural as heck. And you're going down the road. You just, you don't even think about what your hand's doing. You just, mm-hmm. you're shaping the road. That's kind of how it is for me with a forehand. If I was, uh, if I was throwing backhand, it would be like me driving a motorcycle. Like, I, I don't know how to drive a motorcycle, even though I know, like the theory the is general the same. idea. It's like it, you probably just kind of move to the left if you need to go. Left. Mm-hmm. I that's how I felt. I guess then I'm, I'm a lot more comfortable now with yeah. the backhand, but it's it's just. It's just always been rewriting um, these instinctive processes in my brain yeah. to try to get to a place where I could be somewhat as comfortable with that that form versus yeah. the other. So are there some players on tour right now who, you know, they throw a forehand and you just can't get a useful read off of it? Um, yeah, sure. I mean, so many guys now. It's it's incredible. It's been... Do you want to name names or are you just... Yeah. Being... No, no. I would definitely... Well, I, I just... I, I've been amazed by the influx of of disc golfers who are just so good with forehands. <laughs> um, you know, I think of I think of uh, the simplicity of a Tristan Tanner. Just the one angle, yeah. step back. He's not doing anything extra with the disc. It just locks in, reaches back, same plane, pulls through on one plane, like you're saying. 
a lot of players like uh, if you think of like a Paul McBeth, he he developed his forehand kind of coming from the Avery Jenkins school of thought, right? Where he throwing had, like, a circle, big first. loop, a circle, and then into the shot, right? And he's able to to do that shot accurately over and over because he's Paul McBeth. Mm-hmm. But that might not work for everyone else. And what Tristan was able to do is just go wham back one angle, wham two, and the disc just it. You have to see it in person because it just absolutely launches yeah it's i brought up eagle earlier Mm -hmm. will you i i will remember him i will remember that forehand um eagle is very similar to tristan yes but it's more violent you have you seen like slow motion imagery of eagle's forehand when it was in its prime oh yeah like I didn't know Joint's moves was just quite like that. Snapping in the weirdest places. Like it, <laughs> I don't know how his arm didn't break before it did. Mm-hmm. It just was like it came together in this way that was so smooth. But what, what had to happen to get that insanely? It just what was the word you explosive? No, uh, you said I don't know the word for whatever. Violent. Violent. Yeah, maybe that was what you said, but. The, the, to create that violence is just was it's beautiful and like don't let your love <sighs> I gawked many many hours on the <laughs> it, it doesn't it didn't make any sense like you've played uh Deeglo yes? sure you think about hole 18 sure can you think of a time when eagle didn't birdie that one with a forehand it was it, okay we were talking at the open at Austin about how difficult one of the holes was. Uh, I think it was hole seven, maybe like three, yeah, 380, yeah. 380 forehand, forehand really far to the, the right. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was able to get it one of the rounds, but it was like one out of three is about the best I could possibly do in a tournament sure. on that. Mm-hmm. And I asked you like, Eight years ago, this would have been the hardest hole in the course, right? Yeah. <laughs> it would have been one of the least birdied for sure. Right, right, right. So, I feel like Eagle kind of opened everybody's eyes to this is what the potential of the forehand is. Mm. And now there's a bunch of people who can get something like 18 at Deeglow. Well, think about like Albert Tom. Yep. Albert Tom's forehand is coming out essentially as fast as Eagle's was, Mm -hmm. as fast as Tristan's is. Um, I mean, let's go back to the roots. The guy who really brought the forehand to the top level. Big Jeremy <laughs> Ricky Wysocki. Sure. I definitely. mean, Ricky Wysocki had this forehand that um, I, I remember baggy basketball shorts, Ricky, white socky. <laughs> Tall white socks, baggy basketball shorts. Playing um, every weekend. Yeah, yep. Yeah. And just baby face Rick. And that Ricky, I, the first time I was exposed to his game was, I think, the Seneca Creek Soiree. Sure. Um, no, 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 no. It wasn't Seneca Creek. It was. Um, Dapsco? It was Seneca Creek because I'm thinking of hole one and the, the final nine. Uh, the only way you could possibly get there is 500 something feet downhill, but it was low ceiling. The only way you could get there was a roller. Mm-hmm. And Ricky just busts out this forehand with a destroyer that just, it was something else. Mm-hmm. You know, as a guy who was like the forehand guy on tour, no one else was really doing it at that level back in 2012, 2011. Yeah. Seeing Ricky rip that. I was just like, I, I don't have that. <laughs> and that was the first time I was like, but I want that. <laughs> you know, like I've all, I've always been the guy that's got the forehand. Yeah. Like, who's this? What the heck's going on? And then Ricky, you know, when he became Mr. Waisaki and no longer do we feel confident enough to call him White Saki anymore. Um, that was when people really started to see like, this is what a 470 foot sidearm <laughs> looks like. And I mean, he kind of went away from it for a while because he was really trying to develop the backhand. Yeah. Because, I mean, let's be honest, that is the most dynamic shot. That's the most versatile, versatile shot mm-hmm. in the game. You just your hand can do more with a disc with the backhand grip. Yeah, your your reach back and your follow through are greater. You're able to get more spin, more control, all sorts of thing. For sure, I 100% agree the backhand is a more versatile throw. So Stan was right. He had a lot of right ideas. (laughs) But in this day and age, you have to have a hyzer that goes left, and you have to have a hyzer that goes right, I think, to be very 
very competitive. It's possible for players like James Conrad, Kayla Visca, Michael Johansson to, yeah. to make it work. Mm -hmm. But on a lot of the holes on tour, like you can simplify considerably just by throwing hyzer. It just makes things less strenuous on your brain. And as we all know, there are, uh, there's like a, like a thermometer, but it's like a stress thermometer that just fills up and you yeah. don't want to fill it up too soon. And if you got to do all these stressful shots early, that, that stress thermometer yeah, if, is going to If you burst. take drop-in pars on holes one, two, three, and four instead of making 28 for par. Yes. You're in, you're in a great you're shape. Great. <laughs> that thermometer is right. It's resting in the bottom third. You're feeling good. Um, but, yeah, Ricky really brought the, the, big, the big forehand to the forefront. Mm -hmm. And I, I'm not going to lie, actually. I was a little annoyed with his forehand because, I like I was saying before, I had this, like, really artistic-y – artsy style beforehand i was throwing flip-ups and trying to match angle with which possible anheuser angle or flip-up angle would make the gap the widest and then also if it as it comes to the ground how do i match the slope yeah and how do i get it to slide up to the pin and then here's ricky firebird in hand ripping speeds that are like way faster than what i'm throwing hitting the gap still yep but hitting it with this like ugly angle, I was not impressed with at all. As as a very judgy bystander, I was just watching. I'm like, no, 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 no. Yet he's right there too. Like the end product was he's 25 feet, I'm 25 feet. Our disc got to the same place. I'm not happy about it. He made his putt. Also, I missed it low. Also, he's gonna jam the putt right. <laughs> Or he's he, actually, if we're really being honest, what it was, it was called the Ricky Iwasaki void, which is he's 55, you're 20, you come out with the same score. Yep. And he goes, dot, void, you know, your, your park job doesn't matter, you know, like that kind of stuff. And you're just so angry because this little pipsqueak is just taking your lunch money and you're just sitting and there smiling like, through the whole thing. <laughs> and it's just like, you throw a bad shot, you'd be mad walking up to the hole. He like does an anger putt and makes it. And then you're just sitting there like, you just got birdie and you're pissed. And I'm sitting there like, I just sculpted this masterpiece. And I, the only reason I'm upset is because we're tied and you're angry and I did everything right. <laughs> and that's where the void came from. Hmm. Yep. So not, many people don't know about the Ricky Wasaki dot void. D-A-H-H-T. D-H. D-A-H-H-T. And he'd like drop his jaw and then his tongue would come out and he'd look at you and he'd be like, ah. <laughs> <laughs> Ricky, man. Yeah, that guy caused some sleepless nights back in the 2012 to 2015 years before he started winning majors and, you know, became a force. Yep. Yep. Force day Wasaki. Putting, putting a wampin on all of us. Yeah. So anyways, I, back to the forehands. I mean... When when Nate Sexton went on tour with Paul McBeth in 2015, uh, we really got to see another type of forehand. Sure. Which is very um, overstable-minded, but he can still straighten the disc out. He was known for throwing a champion orc quite well for, mm -hmm. like, woodsy shots. But, I mean, we all know Sexton as the Firebird guy, and his Firebird of choice was a Firebird that was a workable angle, not just the most overstable one, like we were seeing Ricky throw, right? But one that he could kind of gently turn and get it to gently fade, and you know. And I think the neat thing about Sexton was that he would throw that for anything between like ninety and three seventy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no doubt. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say like two twenty, but you're right. No, he it would absolutely be just like little short dumps and like. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking in my mind, like, I couldn't even imagine someone seeing me throw a Firebird for less than a 280-foot shot. But yeah, here's, like, here he Very he's, embarrassing he's, for you. <laughs> I just, I, it's, a, it's a putter. It's an AVR X3, you know, right. or it's back in the day, At it was a time, zone or yeah. back, you know, whatever it was, you know, for whatever company I was sponsored by. But yeah, I mean, seeing him throw those, it's just like, yeah, the results are perfect, but you're throwing a nine-speed on a... You know, but then like, who cares? That this is once again like you being judgy and you know, oh, so my elegance is <laughs> just pedantic as hell. Like I just is that right? Shallow and pedantic. I was both. I mean, mm -hmm. it was like just judging to, in every single way, just because the forehand meant so much to me that you know, I just looked at it like that's my thing. Quit yeah, it. it, well, it, it well, you know, really that that really came into play um, back at the 
uh, St. Jude Invitational. Several years ago, um, we used to have this big tournament out there in California in Monterey. Uh, what does used to mean? How many years did it actually happen? I it's remember tw- one. Two years. Okay. Happened twice. But uh, Classic. I, we're, yeah, we're in the warm-up field, and Macbeth says, Hey, Jerem, look what, I, look what I've been working on. And he just throws one of the most beautiful stand-up late-turning forehands. And then just turns around and like winks at me and like, see, I got it too. And I was just thinking to myself, like, dude, go home. Like, Can I? Yeah, like one of us needs to retire right now. <laughs> yeah, like he, he just showed me, like, if I wanted to, I could just do your thing and do it better than you. <laughs> and it's just like, cool, man. <laughs> like, Bess always had this like really funny attitude that like he always tries to use the, uh, no one ever thought I could, you know, like, they said I was too small. Yeah, th- th- this is like one of those um, coach World pump beaters. up speech yeah. things. Like he's always posting. Are you like kidding? Come on, man. But here's the thing: no one ever said he couldn't. <laughs> we were all like, "No, yeah, you very, you probably will." <laughs> we're we're all just being like very quiet and yeah. still. Like maybe he won't see us. <laughs> yeah, I, I will. I'll never forget it. it. This only worked one time for me in my entire career. But going right before the memorial, 2015, I remember telling Macbeth how good he was. And like, just like Ooh. being unbelievably amazed by, man, do, I honestly don't even think you're beatable. And I don't, I don't really know how that played into the 2015 Memorial. Mm-hmm. What I do know is Did Macbeth you do the- had the greatest season in modern era in 2015, winning all the majors and third place being his worst finish. <laughs> um, but I do know that also that he started the national tour season and finished the national tour season by losing to a player from Charlotte, North Carolina in a playoff. <laughs> Me and uh, the Memorial and then Michael Johansson at Appling, Georgia. Mm-hmm. And, um, but yeah, that was like our two small little victories. Cause Macbeth just Tor- torched the rest. Just of torched. Yeah. <laughs> just made us all look really, really dumb. But yeah, I, I inflated his ego a little bit and you know, I don't know if that worked for me or not, but okay. Well, I guess we know that his love language is being told how great he is. I think he likes for people to doubt him because he can use that as motivation. He uses that as fuel. And so, if you ever want to beat Macbeth something, don't tell him that you're going to beat him at it because mm. you most likely won't. Mm. All right. Um, if you enjoyed this podcast and want more, and have many lavish compliments. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at fish58320. And if you thought the podcast was lacking in some way and need to yell at somebody about it, where can folks find you? It's uh, Instagram is going to be the best way. It's Big Germ DG, Germ spelled with a J. And uh, that's, I mean, that's really the, uh, Facebook, does, do people do that still? Uh huh. Yeah. Uh, that's pretty much it. I mean, yeah, leave comments on Joma's. I usually read a lot of them. So, boy. He reads the YouTube comments, and he claims to be a functioning adult. Thank you for your time. Thank you, Fish. That's all for this episode of the Fish Golf Broadcast. But be sure to check out previous episodes and subscribe wherever fine podcasts are sold. Check out Fish Golf Broadcast hats and other apparel at discgolfbra.com and badger your friends until they listen too. Join us next time as I goad yet another guest into starting a fight with another touring player, campsite host, or toll booth attendant on the Fish Golf Broadcast.